And to be able to write in a way which appeals to the whole spectrum is quite challenging because you don't want to appear condescending to anyone and you also don't want to appear alienating to anyone. So finding that balance is often quite a big challenge. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. I know that many of our students are working in different banks and writing the copy of banking apps because it's really important today that kind of institutions would have great user experience in their platforms, apps, websites. So they are doing massive hiring right now for uh, UX writers. So I had the chance to speak with Dave Glazier from used to work in one of the biggest banks in South Africa. So we spoke about the UX writing culture in South Africa but also about building a team that's writing the content of a banking app. So it was an amazing episode. If you're different struggle right now with writing for a banking app, this episode is definitely for you. Don't forget to follow our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com and have fun. So today we're having Dave Glazier. Did I say it correctly? Yeah, nearly. It's Glazier, so Glazier. not far off. Okay. <laughs> And you are UX lead in one of uh, South Africa's largest banks, right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Amazing. And I would love to listen and hear all about your process and how did you get into this exciting field. But first, I would love to ask, what's your background? How did you get into UX writing and UX in general? So how did you become a UX lead? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like a lot of us, I kind of almost fell into it in a, an odd way, in a strange direction for me. I've been a journalist initially. And following that, I've worked in corporate communications, very strong background in copywriting and, you know, bleeding into broader marketing functions. And, you know, ultimately, I saw an opportunity to go in a specific path, which I didn't know what it was going to be like at the time, really. But UX writing was an opportunity. And I've now been in that field for, you know, a year and a half or so. And it has proven to be a lot bigger and more exciting than I ever thought that it could be. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you start? What was your first background, your first job that you took? Was it related to writing or was it related to design or what was it all about? Well, so specifically in, in the UX writing field, do you mean? No, in general, about your background. Uh, well, yeah, so I've written as a journalist for a number of years um, for different, actually focused on technology a lot and financial services a lot. So I've written for various media outlets and then, as I said, into the corporate communication space, representing a few companies in terms of their copywriting needs and defining messaging strategy, tone of voice and writing a lot of the physical output. So I've written across the board from, you know, lengthy thought leadership, white papers all the way through to short bite-sized tweets. And I mean, UX writing obviously is different from marketing writing. We know that distinction, but I think there's a lot that you can carry through from that background and bring into the UX world. So marrying the communications background about UX as a field, I think UX writing sits there at the nexus of those two areas. This is really cool. And when transitioning to UX and product in general, so what do you think people should focus when they're doing the transition from being, you know, journalists or writers or communication managers to working on digital products, digital experiences, uh, different product design maybe? So uh, when you go through that gate, so which kind of skills, soft skills and hard skills do you think one should uh, develop? 
couple of things come to mind. I mean, firstly, you know, we need to understand ultimately what the business driver is behind what we're writing. Whether we're writing a press release or we're trying to guide somebody efficiently through a, a transactional journey on a banking app, ultimately there's a business driver behind all of this. Um, there's a, a company that needs to make money in a certain way and being really aware of how that money is made, what the business is driving at, what their strategy is. I think that's you know the starting point. And then on the other side of that fence, I would say, you know, there's an audience, whether they are a customer that, that is using a particular app or website, or whether they are somebody that's reading an online news site or scrolling through Twitter, or whatever it may be, really the audience is there and being, being aware of your audience, who they are, what kind of attention they can give you, how you're best going to reach them on their terms, speaking their language. I think understanding both sides of that, you know, is something that you'd learn from the school of journalism, of copywriting, of corporate comms, and you can bring that into the UX writing space very effectively. Mm -hmm. So knowing your audience is something that is very similar for uh, any type of writing and uh, UX writing, but what's the differences? You said something about... For example, you have a user journey with transactional actions in a banking app. So how do you even start working on a project like that? It sounds so complicated for a writer, for example, for a copywriter. Yeah, I mean, I think we do obviously get a lot of guidance from the, the disciplines that's, that we work with here. So the UX discipline, the CX discipline, the research that may have gone into that, the business cases that have been built. I think we, you know, supported well by the broader thinking that perhaps has been done, you know, before we even enter the fray that helps us to define, you know, what needs to be done done here? What's the goal? Who does? So we don't work off a completely blank canvas. We actually work with quite a lot of information that's already been well prepared and researched for us. So maybe that helps a lot. That's amazing. And then maybe just to add to that, you know, as we as writers grow in confidence, and I'm sure we're going to touch on it in this, in this session, but growing our sphere of influence, growing our strategic relevance to what we're doing in terms of the broader UX discipline, As we get more confident and more experienced in this game and as our field of UX writing continues to become more significant, I think that we find these opportunities to elevate our role, to get involved a lot earlier in that design process, even to the point where we're helping to determine what we should be doing in the first place. What apps should we make? What features should we make? What service for our clients should we be digitizing, for example? There's no reason why a writer can't rise up to those levels of strategy as well. Right, I agree 100%. We were mentioning a lot in the past few episodes about the fact that writers must have a seat at the table, and I completely agree. And uh, you said something about the fact that a lot of people have been doing their research and you have different data, and you don't start with blank canvas when you write. So on what kind of uh, form do you get this data And how do you usually digest it? If we need to speak a little bit about your process. So I think, you know, to talk about the process, maybe like I said, it starts with being given a clear brief from your business stakeholders, whether you work in-house at a company, whether you work in an agency or on your own, you know, um, see them as your client. That client really has the, their responsibility is to make sure that they've um, prepped you with everything that you could need to be able to write well. So providing you with the clear business case, um, the clear research findings around 
what the customer wants, I think is a starting point. And then, you know, in terms of process, you know, you asked about the process. I think, you know, the, the process should, should be that the rights is pulled in as early as possible into that design value chain at the wireframe stage, at the concept stage. As you know, we find it very hard to really influence. I think of it like cement that is getting more and more solidified over time. And if we come in too late and the basics of the UX has already been defined, we're relegated down to the lorem ipsum replaces. You know what yeah. I mean? You're just sort of putting the words on at the end as a finishing touch, and that's too late. You know, the concrete has already set too much by then. We need to be involved earlier while the, the cement is still wet, and we still have that opportunity to have quite a significant influence on the broader UX itself. Um, so the process, you know, kind of needs to start there. And then, yeah, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about our specific is a good process, which is... Um, you know, an element of pair writing with our UX and our UI colleagues, sort of sitting next to them. So that idea of agile co-location is relevant to us. You know, writers have a lot of the time in the past been the sort of the lone woodsman on their own. And that doesn't really work in this space. You have to actually sit and write with people side by side. And you also have to, I think, have a solid foundation for your writing. So reasons for wanting to write in a certain way. What is the style guide that you've created, the tone of voice, the architecture you might have put together from a messaging point of view, and all the way down to the, the specific words and phrases that you know, you've agreed on as a team, that you're going to write that type of message in this way. Having a library, I'm very passionate about building a library of approved copy artifacts, phrases, buttons, terms, error messaging, you know, across the whole and it's, that is basically approved language that you can use wherever possible to achieve the consistency. Amazing. The content style guide, I would say. Mm, yeah, and that and, and more, you know. I think a style guide is maybe quite, quite a high-level perspective on things. It does help to keep your ship sailing in the right direction, but you also, I think, need to bring in a very tangible, specific phrases and words and, and labels and error messaging and things like that that are going to be used throughout. Uh, if you consider in our world, for instance, we our company creates quite a lot of different digital interfaces, many different websites and uh, digital features, quite a few different apps. And in order for us to make sure that there's a consistent experience across them all, the, that some keywords have to come through across all those touch points. Mm -hmm. And the writers write all of those uh, interfaces or... You have designers that uh, work with the content style or like with the library that you've created. And my question is if only the writer is writing in your organization or you have also uh, designers that use your, the library that you created for copy. I think in practice at the moment, the reality is that the writer is, is involved 100% of the time. But I think there's an ultimate nirvana state we, we'd look to get to where we do sort of automate and standardize quite a lot of our copy into design systems so that the writer doesn't need to be there for every single little need that the designer can pull from that componentry, you know, to, to actually be able to use approved content at the right place and the right time. As I'm sure a lot of others in our field have noticed, it, it is actually quite hard to get that in practice going, um, but in theory, that's one of the directions that uh, I'd look to try and move our, our team towards because um, it would allow uh, the writers to free up their time away from some of the lower value work all exactly. the way to the more strategic work. Yeah. I'm telling you, writers these days, uh, I'm speaking with a lot of writers these days, and they're all saturated with works. Like, uh, they have so much responsibilities that it looks like they would have to create some kind of uh, 
automation like uh, like that that the copy will be documented in the design system and or just hire more writers you know but it looks I, like i mean it's yeah mm-hmm. uh, absolutely and i i think the really exciting journey that you'd go on with that ultimately is how do you kind of infuse ai writing you know there is um natural language generation which is starting to emerge as a budding field and i certainly saw an advert for a car manufacturer i think it was even last year in fact that um, was basically written by ai and there's a lot of financial journalism already written like that a lot of sports journalism written like that so that opportunity for us over the coming few years to practically apply um, machine learning or AI writing could be a very exciting direction that does help to free us up from all of the drudgery work, again, to focus on higher order activities. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. I have a few questions about the library that we were talking about. Two questions. One is a little bit more technical and short, which is what tool do you use to document it? Is it like internal tool? Is it like online? Is it uh, Google Sheets? How do you exactly do that? Yeah, so in our specific space, we've had a custom-made design system nice. for um, the, the past few years, which has served the need to this point. But I think that we are potentially going to look at moving to a more standardized design system which is provided by a, a particular vendor and to customize that according to our needs rather than to, to build and maintain from scratch. Uh, as with any enterprise technology purchase decision you kind of have to look at build or buy and as time evolves and the needs evolve sometimes the decision switches from build to buy and, and i think that may be the case <laughs> so uh, some, some of the design mm-hmm. system thinking we've got ultimately the, un- the underlying content is still the same isn't it so you know it's really just a, a matter of platform migration but the underlying content which is where the gem is the real value is you know, can be fairly, I hope, fairly easily moved from one platform to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you say what's the platform that you're moving to? The name of it? Yeah, I think it might be something which is still a bit premature for, for the company at this point. So it might not be right to mention it specifically. I don't mm-hmm. think the, the final call has been apologies for that. No problem, no problem. Good. So my second question related to that is... Okay, so when we start to do a library like that, we need to create some kind of, I would say, to define the voice and tone, to understand different how do we write errors and all of that. So what, let's say that our listeners, few of them, are working on a content style guide or a library like that. So what will be the first step that they will need to take when creating something like that? How, what will be like good tips to define your voice and tone and to establish it in a library like that. I'm not sure if this would maybe apply to everyone, but the way that I've pictured this world is almost in three levels with the broader level being the overarching tone and voice, uh, the personality, the, the emotive responses we're trying to evoke among our audiences. Um, the style guide, if we can call it that, at the biggest sense. And then going down a level within that, and I sort of picture it as three concentric circles, actually. Um, so the middle layer would be more guidance notes around how to write certain types of 
um, UX interfaces. So, you know, what are the sort of best practices around writing an app store description, for instance? What about chats? How would you approach that? What about the best practices around notifications, um, around how to write an error message effectively, around how to um, create forms effectively, tooltips? Um, you know, so I think that starts to get a bit more practical and defined into the different spaces. And then at the in the center, at the very lowest level, is what I mentioned before, really. It's the library of defined copy artifacts, those terms, the sentences, paragraphs, the actual words, which have been accepted by the organization and which can be rolled out, you know, without any question. So I kind of tiered, you know, ultimately those three levels, each one plays a role. And I don't know if that helps, but that's how, how I've certainly... No, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. We have three layers here. The first one will be more high level, creating a voice and tone. After that, creating a guidance, as we said and then creating a copy elements that you can just uh, reuse, like in some kind of a design system. That's right, yeah. Which is pretty awesome. And so let's focus on the first. So, and let's focus on the first step with your process for doing for, for NetBank. So let's say that right now we need to define the voice and tone of the bank. This is quite a process, I guess. It's, it needs to be aligned with the brand and all of that. And until not that long time ago, most of the banks, when you want to go, and still today, when you go to the banks, online experiences, it can be tedious and awful and not friendly and not without any conversation going on and you don't feel like someone is listening to you. So where do you start when you want to create voice and tone? Do you do some kind of a workshop or exercise or something specific that our listeners, that many of them work in, the leading companies in the world right now, and they also have this challenge right now. They also want to understand what is the voice and tone of their product. So where should they start? I mean, knowing where your company is moving towards from a brand, a very high-level branding perspective, how does it want itself to be known in the market is surely the starting point. And it really does need to be informed very deeply by listening to customers themselves. You know, did that particular type of brand message resonates? Did it come off authentically or did it was it superficial? What do the customers need from their bank in this case? Do they want the bank to be a very conversational, a very soft, warm personality kind of um, kind of being? Or do they just want something very functional and clinical and um, they don't really want to have a relationship with their bank? You know, these are some of the questions that you need to ask. And obviously every customer would have a slightly different different perspective, but what what is the dominant theme? What are what are mm-hmm. customers kind of looking for and then as brand experts and brand strategists as our colleagues what do they believe is the right way to go forward one of the points that i think is quite interesting as ux writers is you know on one side i almost feel like the writing needs to be somewhat invisible you know you shouldn't have to remember the word on that button that brought you to where you are it needs to get out of the way and just make sure that the user natively intuitively can flow through things but on the other hand you don't want it to be so unobtrusive you want to have some kind of brand personality in there as well and i do believe in conversational interfaces and that there should be some kind of emotional connection between between the company and the user. So there's always a bit of a balance between bringing in that personality but also just making things very frictionless. I understand. Like clarity is much more important than to try to speak like the voice of the product in many cases. A lot of the time I find that, that you do swing towards more that end of the spectrum. 
you know, people, very functional thing. And, and, you know, nobody really wakes up in the morning and decides they really want to go banking and it'll be so much fun. <laughs> you know, it is more a, not a grudge purchase, but it's a functional element of our, of our day-to-day lives. And so they're not always interested in a huge experience from it. Um, they're more interested in a functional outcome to make sure that it does just go as smoothly and quickly and securely as it can. But on the other side, there's certain types of user experiences where you do want to bring in a more experiential approach where, you know, for instance, you might be looking at purchasing a home loan and, you know, it may well serve us to bring in a lot more advisory stuff around what to look out for, what is a good idea, and to create more of an experience around that. But if you just want to quickly pop in and and buy some airtime, you generally don't need too much conversation going on there. So it depends on the particular job to be done on that day for that customer. Basically, I just uh, want to know if there is any specific use case that was very challenging in that manner when you wrote the app of uh, NetBank. Yeah, there's been many that are, I think every single one has a, a challenge to it. <laughs> Maybe to touch on the nuances of our country is that we provide a service to a very broad spectrum of customers who are at very, very different levels of English literacy. And I mean, obviously, a lot of our interfaces are dominantly in English and also different levels of financial literacy. Um, it's due to various factors around our history and where we've come from. And But at this point in time, often you find yourself writing an interface for, a, let's say, a smartphone app or even a USSD interface, which really does appeal to, to everybody from the entry-level customer that's looking just for a sort of a low-touch, low-cost basic solution all the way through to quite an advanced, sophisticated super user, which has very complex banking requirements, a small business owner, quite a busy individual with a lot of money uh, movement here and there. And to be able to write in a way which appeals to the whole spectrum is quite challenging because you don't want to appear condescending to anyone and you also don't want to appear alienating to anyone. So finding that balance is often quite a big challenge because we find that a basic Android smartphone app is used by everyone. That, that's a persistent challenge across the board that we find. Yeah. That's amazing. And how do you approach that challenge? You just simplify? Okay. So first of all, in South Africa, you have the language uh, African, right? Yes, Afrikaans and English are what we'd often call, you know, just quite bluntly out sort of white languages. And then within the African communities, we would have another nine, believe it or not, another nine official languages. So we actually have 11 languages wow. and also sign language, which makes it 12 official languages in the country. So you just see the the level of diversity that we have there, which makes writing in in English a big challenge. And I think to be practical with the answer around how how do we... So the concept of progressive reveal, I think, comes through a lot where we might, for instance, have as plain a language as we can for a lot of our interfaces. But if we feel there's a financial concept or a term which needs perhaps further explanation for some people, we may tuck it away behind a little tooltip, a little eye button that someone can tap on and they can expand it and then they can read the definition of that term, for example, like what is gross income, what is net income. We don't want to push all of that into everyone's faces because for a lot of customers, they might not need to have that explained to them. But for those that do, we're very conscious that we don't want to leave them out and leave them feeling confused or that this isn't for them. It's got to be a very inclusive strategy. So we use little devices like a tooltip, for example, which can be quite uh, innocuous and unobtrusive for most users, but it's there for those that might need the help. Sounds really good. I like that solution to create some kind of a clarity next to terms that might be unclear and simplified for the end user. I think it's a good uh, thing to do. 
Do you have some kind of process to get inspiration from, like a benchmark or competitor analysis or even UX websites that give you different kinds of resources of uh, inspiration? Mm. Yeah, I mean, inspiration comes from many directions. I think there's a lot that's already maturing and being written and documented out there. There's a lot of communities that are forming, as you know, and UX Writing Hub is obviously one of those that has a really strong and continual flow of resources and insights. So we, we would look to those things. Um, we certainly would look at our, yeah, absolutely, we'd certainly look at our direct competitors you know, down the road as well. But we'd also look at the global best practices, not just from banking. As you know, banking is really being intruded upon by all sorts of different sectors. And so it isn't, uh, it compete with and look at. We would look at all sorts of different companies from the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples of the world all the way into certain other sectors too. I think we also get a lot of inspiration from technology itself. You know, so South Africa is just such a technology-mad country. We have more than 100% penetration of cell phones. You know, you'll find smartphones everywhere in every community. So we're very quick adopters of technology. And that also kind of inspires us about what's the potential for the future. And then I think we just, as we've said, we're an extremely diverse country, the rainbow nation. We have, and that's the beauty, I think, of working in this kind of space is that we learn a lot from each other. We draw inspiration from our, each of our different backgrounds. In my team, for example, all of us come from very different backgrounds. And that is very interesting to hear from each other because it helps us to solve problems from different dimensions and to give inspiration to each other in different ways. That's really cool. So how big is your writing team? We, I mean, I think NetBank itself was quite an early mover when it came to understanding, appreciating the opportunity with proper UX writing. So for a good few years now that they've started a team, um, at the moment we have a core UX writing hub of four writers dedicated to that. But we're a part of a bigger content community, a bigger writing body, which looks at websites, writing, um, emailers. Right. Like also SEO, maybe technical writing. Yes, there is an element of that as well. So from a sort of a digital product team, we have a broader unit of about eight writers at the moment across the transactional interfaces and, and like I said, the more the non-secure, the non-logged-in states, uh, like mm-hmm. the websites as well. So it is quite a big team overall. It's taken seriously and it's a team of experience and senior writers, which I think is also important to note. You know, it's a model that I think we've noticed, which is that this is a deceptively very challenging field. It might look simple when you read some of the wording, but the stuff that goes into it is obviously it requires somebody with a lot of experience. And so we generally find that um, having senior writers that are able to go and build their own networks and relationships within the various business areas is a model that's served us quite well so far. Amazing. And uh, what would be the ratio between the writers and designers, the product writers and the designers? If you have four senior writers working on the transactional emails and website and uh, checking flows and all of those, if you compare it to the UX designers, is it like uh, equal or you have more designers? Uh, no, we definitely have... A lot more designers, again, of a respected field here. I think the bank has recognized that there's a, a really big opportunity to digitize almost everything that one can do. And um, it allows us to reach a far bigger market to include a lot more people formally into the, into the financial economy. As you know, our country is also geographically extremely 
extremely vast and across many different rural areas. So digital is really the only way to ever have the presence that you want to be able to include everyone. So we have a very strong and large team of CX professionals, UX professionals, UI professionals, and various other related services that go into that and quite a, a lot of care and thinking around building a scalable UX capability that is going to carry us through into the digital future. Amazing. And if you need to compare between CX and UX exciting, how would you say that like, they work together, you have a team? But how would you say their relationship looks like? I'm not sort of 100% confident in my knowledge of that, that interaction. I think obviously at a high level, we see CX as the broadest right. part of the puzzle. And then within there, you would have obviously the UX. Yeah, uh, I don't know about exactly technically the, the interaction model. Um, I think the only other thing I could say at a high level is, is just, again, that sort of respect and depth of user research. We, we also have a very strong Um, research team which literally goes out into the field to speak to customers where they are where they live where they work where they travel to really understand more about their day-to-day -day life when you sort of go out there and you listen properly you realize that you know perhaps my life is quite different from the one that a lot of South Africans live and um, the challenges from a day-to-day -day perspective are also very different so we really lean on our user research which I think informs the, the customer experiences that we we ultimately end up designing Nice. And do you have the opportunity as a writer to tell the research team member which kind of data do you need right now? Or usually you just use the existing data that the researchers gave you? Yeah, we usually sort of listen into some of their findings and apply that thinking when, when we start our writing. There's also a few technical tools as writers that we can employ. For instance, jumping onto things like Google Trends and even Google Keyword Planner. Yes, they may be sort of more SEO-based tools, but they can tell you a lot about what customers are searching for and how they speak. So do people sing or do they say vehicle financing? And through certain technical measures, you can understand more about the language customers use and make sure that you use that language with them. I'm just trying to think if there's sort of anything else. I really enjoyed you know, this tip actually. Yes, everything. Yeah, so I mean, there's certain sort of key projects which are quite different in nature. So one of the really exciting focus areas for us is about chat. So that whole global move from voice interaction into text-based interaction. And if that's how people are speaking to each other, then uh, as a company, we'd like to be able to allow people to speak to us like that. It also gives us the opportunity to pull you know, AI into the chat strategy. So that was a, an entirely new area that's popping up where we felt it may be necessary to embark on specific research into that field. And I think as writers, we had some say in, in, into what we wanted to hear back, what we wanted to find out. It all, I suppose, also depends on our level of confidence as writers. How confident do we feel that we know what to do next? And if we don't feel confident enough, we, we commission the research and we, we ask the right questions. Nice. I really like the tip that you said about uh, using SEO research tools in order to understand how your uh, users are talking with each other. Like, it's really interesting. There's tools like Ahrefs or SEMrush or even free tools like Ubersuggest or Keyword Planner by Google or even Google Trends that you can That's just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. So I find them very useful. We also need to sometimes explain ourselves. I think maybe that's another point that we didn't touch on yet. But as a fairly new budding field, the organization, the various people that we may come across, they don't always understand 
understand, um, you know, what, what we do. We, there, there's an element that we have to sell ourselves. We have to always, you know, justify, earn, earn our ticket to the game, as it were. And, and that's part of being a UX writer. I think we all have to go through that. And it is good for us to have to justify what we do and, and why we do it. So in those conversations where you may find that um, somebody wants to see something a certain way, when we come with our, not our opinions, but with our position, it needs to have the depth of research to substantiate why we're recommending things to be done in a certain way. We often work here in a very sort of democratic, collaborative space. Nobody necessarily has clear mandate to make hard decisions. And that's beautiful because it means that ultimately the strength of your position should usually rise to the top and become the default way of doing things. So I, I certainly encourage, you know, the, the guys I work with to to research things, um, to have a solid position for why you want to write in a certain way. And then it doesn't become a subjective opinion versus another subjective opinion. Amazing. And when they present you their ideas based on the research, usually there is like a meeting and everybody's sitting in the meeting room and people presenting like presentations and stuff, or it's more about uh, just uh, casual talk? Oh, I think the interactions happen in so many different ways. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. We, uh, as writers, we, we love to get embedded in, uh, we, we operate as a central function within our product digital design community because we, we want to work as one unit so we can get that consistency across all the channels. But our other foot is always within the business stakeholders that we work with. And, um, you know, we spend physically time with them. We spend a lot of time in meetings with them. We obviously engage in across different, different ways. I don't think it necessarily matters whether it's an email or a phone call or a physical meeting, but just knowing their world better, understanding, you know, what they're trying to drive at better and then allowing them to understand us better and why we'd like to do things in a certain way. I think that's just the key. Nice. We are about to finish our short conversation. <laughs> and before we finish, I would like to ask a little bit about, you were very focused in this talk about your processes and about working in banking. But I would love to know your take on UX writing in general in South Africa. And what do you think the status right now, how people perceive it, is there awareness to it right now? And uh, are there any open positions right now, uh, regardless to specific banks? What's happening right now in South Africa? Yeah, it's certainly a blossoming field. Um, I think that's clear. Um, personally, I've kind of noticed a big shift towards understanding it and regarding it as a specific discipline. And in its own right, that does need senior professional writers, um, you know, involved. So starting to see a lot more. So care and creativity in our interfaces. Um, the quality is, is definitely getting there. Um, there's surely lots of opportunities in this space here. I think uh, you know a lot of people coming into it from different backgrounds. So as a marketing writer or a communications writer or a journalist, for example, there's certainly opportunities to get involved in this field. And it's an exciting thing to be a part of building. And I think you'll get that because you're playing a very key role in, in building this discipline and charting the direction for UX writing. So to get involved now, early in the game, yeah, I believe it's going to be a very fascinating journey we're on. And to have a chance to sort of shape that is very exciting for those of us that are involved. And the other key thing I'd say, which we touched on the diversity of our people and our backgrounds and in our languages. So I think there's some very exciting early forays into multiple languages. Mm -hmm. uh, I using, couldn't agree more. Yeah, using... Uh, of services into various African languages. It's not just that some people, well, certainly some people would 
probably prefer, I, I believe, and I've tried to test this with as many, you know, friends and colleagues as I can, but I believe that, that a lot of people actually would, would love the opportunity to be spoken to in what we call their, their home language. So for a lot of African, South Africans, their home language for them is a very key part of their culture and it's a language that they would use often on a day-to-day basis. Um, we often also find a lot of people would speak three or four or five or even 10 languages. So being able to maybe translate some of our interfaces into that could create a very close bond with our customers and a very different level of experience. So, yeah, I think that's just something about us. You know, we're, we're Africans. We have an oral tradition. Um, for centuries, we've passed down our knowledge by our oral tradition and uh, the opportunity to sort of bring that back now in this very high-tech era is an exciting direction that in South Africa specifically, we, we may look to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's allied to the, the potential also for obviously voice user interfaces, connected cars, home speakers, voice assistants on your cell phone. So we as a team are conceptually thinking a lot about how all these different trends will converge together to create you know, new opportunities as UX writers. Mm-hmm. And another interesting opportunity is even the fact that it's not about translating the interface. It will be more about uh, localizing the interface because you can just translate it as is because when I'm speaking Hebrew, by the way, so when mm. you translate plain English to plain Hebrew as it is, it will mm. be horrible. But when you have localization experts, you can see it right now in different Google apps and you can see it in Airbnb and booking.com and they have a few misses, but sometimes you can actually see local copy, which is amazing. It's like uh, you feel like it's native to your tongue. You can see it also on Netflix. Netflix is very, very clear. There is a localization expert that made sure that uh, me as a Hebrew speaker will feel comfortable and confident to use their platform. And in order to do that transition, which is more than translating, I think we will see much more opportunities in this field. Yeah, it's certainly so. And it's a whole new set of skills, which gives a whole lot of new opportunities to people, which is it's wonderful to be able to apply, you know, if somebody does have multiple languages that I don't know, sorry, I don't know if it is similar in Hebrew or various other countries. But if you look at some of our languages here in South Africa, they're not even the same from one region to the next. So um, certain language might sound, look and sound very different in one town. And then you go to a different province somewhere else in the country, and that same language would actually be spoken in a very different way. So there's so many local nuances, even within the 11 languages that I mentioned, that the concept is obviously very strong. But I think to get it right in practice is going to require a lot of resourcing and a huge amount of work. But sure, it's worth it in the end if we can create the closeness of that customer experience and engagement that we're looking for. I think we're going to get there. It will take us a few years, though. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Dave, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about uh, South Africa and what's happening right now. I didn't know even it's like there is 12 different languages over there. I thought it's like two. I thought it's English and African. But now I have more awareness to what's happening. And uh, yeah, I would love to. By the way, I'm going to different meetups and you uh, exciting events around the world and if you're organizing anything or if you need help to organize an event, a local event, let me know and I would love to help you out. A hundred percent. We're geographically set quite far away from the European markets and the Americas. And so right. fortunately, we can sometimes get a little disconnected. So it's, it's really good for us as a community of UX writers here, I think, to connect more globally with 
other parts of the world. As you can already see, we learn so much from each other. So yeah, the more opportunities to do that, the better. And I'll certainly look out for those opportunities. Yeah. Amazing. Yes, I wish that in 2020, we'll have the option to come to South Africa because it was on my bucket list for a while now. Well, I'll tell you everywhere you need to go. If you can make the trip, I'll give you a few tips on the best places to, to go. I will, I will, I will. There's many, <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much. And if people want to find you online, what would be the best place to do it? Well, I think to find me personally online, maybe LinkedIn is a great place. And mm -hmm. so love connecting with people there. And um, yeah, I think it should be fairly easy to find Dave Glazier if you just search on LinkedIn. I'd maybe suggest that. Perfect. I will also add the link to the show notes. Wonderful. Thanks, Yuval. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. So that was another episode of Writers in Tech. I hope you had fun and learned tons of new things. So currently, we are releasing two episodes of Writers in Tech every month. We have also a weird break on the Jewish holidays, but we try to release two episodes every month. Now, our goal at the moment is to release a single episode every week. Like we have a weekly newsletter, newxwritinghub.com. With every newsletter that we send, we also want to send an episode of the podcast. But creating a podcast is not a cheap thing and we don't have sponsors. So we need your help to reach 100,000 listeners. And by the way, we are already on our way there. Okay, we're not that far away from there. So in order to do it, we need you to take a few actions. Okay, you can share this episode on social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook group, Facebook page, Slack channel, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, anything. Okay, so just share it. You can also write a review and rate us on Apple Podcast because I heard it brings a lot of traction. Also, and this is my favorite one, you can send me personally feedback, yuval at uxwritinghub.com about our content, about the episode, how was it for you, what we can improve. And the content will improve based on your feedback and then naturally more people will come. That's what UX is all about, right? That's it for now. Feel free to listen to another episode. Follow our weekly newsletter, uxwritinghub.com. And see you next time. 